This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Jisoo Kim. And this is a new season of the Soccer Pilgrim podcast, which, you know, with the recent success of the men's Canadian national team, making the Qatar after 36 years, I decided to do a season talking to people who contributed to the Canadian soccer scene throughout Canada. And the first episode, I had to start it with someone I've been in communication with for a, it's over a year. And it's obviously Aaron Hooper. What's up, Aaron? How's it going? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, first things first, did you ever think Canada was going to make it this far? <sighs> well, I mean... I dreamed of this moment for a very, very long time. I think as all of us Canadian football fans did. Yeah. I don't think I believed that it would come as quick as it has. Yeah. Looking back on the last eight years of what us as Canadian soccer fans have gone through. But I mean, since I was supporting this, since I was a 12-year-old boy, like I believed that this would be a dream of mine and I would hope to see this in my lifetime. So I always had a belief that we could do it, but... With everything that we know that goes on with Canadian football in the last 15, 20 years, sometimes I had just stronger <laughs> belief in it. Sometimes there was a weaker <laughs> belief in it. Um, but I knew that we would, uh, we would eventually get there, even with all the people, you know, making fun of you for even supporting Canadian soccer or, yeah. or that kind of stuff. So it's, it's crazy now to just be at this time where we are at the moment. Like every time I hear, oh, Canada is qualified for the World Cup. It's still like, you know, a pinch me moment. Yeah. It's it's just weird to kind of hear that out of media's mouth or out of different <laughs> people's mouth who didn't even support Canadian football, even like maybe six months ago. So. Yeah. It's it's crazy how the tones changed, right? Like, as you said, six months ago, people would have been like, you think they're going to make it? Eh, I don't think they'll make it. It was kind of like that attitude. But I remember since watching this, uh, since a Gold Cup last summer, I was like, I think even that was a U23 team. I was like, I think we're going to make it. If this U23 team is that good, I can only imagine the senior team. And obviously I knew about the senior team and who was on the team. I was like, I think we're good. I was like, I think we're going to make it. And here we are. You're going to Qatar. And even like, like you said, six months ago, I remember I was in Toronto for whatever reason I was there visiting, I think my brother. And we were going around with some friends who are like Brazilian soccer fans. And I was just (laughs) telling them about Canadian football, the rise of Canadian football. And even then they were like, oh, I don't know. Like, yeah. Oh, how are they going to play Panama? Or how are they going to play Mexico? And then I was telling them like, no, like, I think we can actually do it. And there were so many like doubts. Yes. And it's just funny how like the closer we got, the more people started to believe and the more people who like did doubt, you saw them coming around. Uh-huh. And like, I think if this was any other sports team or that kind of stuff, you said, oh, they're bandwagon fans, all this, that. But it's like, no, <laughs> like, this is like the one moment that, even if you didn't believe, if you believe now, welcome. Like you're yeah. here. Welcome to the party. Like this is this is all of our moment to celebrate. And football in this country will never be the same, in my opinion. Yeah, like I remember. I don't know about you as a kid growing up. Soccer or football was always like a immigrant sport. You know, that's what the immigrants play. But now it's beloved. As like this is our game now. Like we love it. Everyone cherishes it. I mean, even in Montreal, everyone's coming up to me because they knew that I was the one that. Out of all my friends, I was the first one going to what was then the impact that I was always going to impact games. And all my friends are like, don't you feel like you're wasting your money? And I was like, you know, I got to, I, I mean, okay, we, we can get to Saputo and how a lot of people have theories about him as a yeah. punter. 
And that's a different story. But I was like, I feel like at least I'm contributing, just being there physically, I'm contributing to this development of the game in Canada. Because, you know, at some point you get tired of like, let's say, you know, I like Liverpool, Real Madrid. Those are my two favorite European teams. But I'm not connected to those clubs whatsoever. I'm completely disconnected. I don't know what it means to be from Liverpool. I don't know what it means to be from Madrid. I visited Madrid, beautiful city, but I don't know what it means to be from there. But I know what it means to be a Montrealer and what it means to be Canadian. So I was like, I'm going to support it through my own way, which is supporting then Impact and now CF Montreal. And imagine and, that you guys were in the A League or you guys were in the NASL. Yeah. And in Ottawa, right? We were in the Canadian Soccer League and we were playing <laughs> against Montreal Impact. Like when Montreal Impact Academy would come to town, yeah. that was a big deal, you know? And we the were, Academy was a big deal. We were playing the Academy, TFC Academy. Montreal, this was before Ottawa Fury was. Um, in the NASL or anything like that. Like wow. when I was a, one of the early founding members of the Bytown Boys Supporters Club mm-hmm. out of the three or four people there. And we founded that in the Capital City FC days. And I was actually funny enough today, I was watching, I don't know, I was just scrolling YouTube and I was watching one of the, some of the old Capital City FC uh, highlights. And I, I, I remember we founded the supporters group and we did an interview. And there was maybe like 200 people at this you know, CSL game, you know what happened with CSL. There was a crazy, so much like uh, drama with uh, match fixing and whatever in CSL. But that was a big deal, just supporting a local side. And But, you know, we could, I could never, honestly, even in that moment, I was only dreaming of having a team at, in the same league as Montreal or at yeah. a professional level. When we even got a professional team in Ottawa, that was just like, that was, I remember when the Ottawa Fury went into the NASL, that was a moment that me and my friends were turning around, we're like, we have a professional team. I can't believe this is even happening. <laughs> so, you know, like, and people were telling us we were even more wasting our time because it's not even a professional level that we were supporting. So mm. it's just crazy how far we kind of come in, uh, in a, in a short period of time. And yeah, cool is now I, I, in my opinion, like it's, it is the most played sport, but it's also becoming the most popular sport in this country. Yeah. Fan-wise too. I think so, because I feel like also what hockey fans, they kind of want to see Canada dominate on an international level outside of hockey. Because I feel like we always dominate, whether it's with, even, even with NHL players on the Canadian Olympic team or not, you know, Canada will always be the big boys, kind of like how Brazil is in football. But even then, like, I think what attracts people the most is that oh, we're good at a sport that we're technically not supposed to be good at. You know what I mean? And we have this like a charismatic generation of players that come through that are playing to, that are playing in Europe and more European scouts are looking into Canadian talent. It almost validates like what we've invested our time in for so long. Like, for example, okay, first things first, the CSL days of match fixing, that's all news to me, by the way. I had no idea about this. No so, way, bro. Because I'm always only interested in MLS. That's a thing. So this is like you... Please break that down because that's, <laughs> that's there was, crazy. There was, uh, the RCMP. So this is the RCMP. This is why I know, but listen about this. So <laughs> I in twenty, I was playing for. So the Capital City FC happened in 20, 2011 or twenty twelve. Okay, so it's a while ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's crazy to think that was a while ago. Even. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was like yesterday. <laughs> it was like yesterday. <laughs> it was 2011, 2013. Capital City FC was playing. We were playing. You were playing like. York Region Shooters and Montreal wow. Impact Academy. And I think there used to be some other Quebec sides, but this was like pre-PLSQ. Okay. Um, and it was like, other than the PDL, it was like the semi-pro sides. And then the year after, I remember, so I was playing at the time and 
Kingston FC was a, a semi-professional side and mm -hmm. uh, joined when Capital City FC folded. Also, when Capital City FC folded, that was the first time I ever cried over football. Really? A little, a little story. When I, that was like the first club, local Canadian football club I fell in love with, you know, after, yeah, yeah I don't know, years of just, you know, we didn't have anything to really support with. Even like the Impact was probably the biggest club at the time. In whatever league they were, Toronto Lynx was only other club really. And I fell in love with that club because it was like our local team. And I remember even in the final of the, we went to the CSL final the first year. And apparently I got in a fight with some like, there was a other club in there called Serbian White Eagles. And okay. they're full of like Serbian Patriot fans. And I got right. in a, like a, as a 16 year old Aaron, I got in like an ultra <laughs> fight in Toronto. We did like an away day to Toronto on a bus. Oh boy. And the club provided, there was like a hundred fans of Capital City there uh, playing in this final. We lost the final. This like old Serbian man was like saying, oh, Capital City sucks. And I was like, no, they don't. They're the best. Like, that was, <laughs> like they lost. And then we were looking forward to the next season. We're like, we're going to win. Like we're going to beat the Impact Academy. We're going to do all this kind of great stuff. And then they folded. And I've never like cried oh. that much about like a football team in my entire life. Oh, Probably like the Ottawa Fury folding was like the second time I cried in like a, in my, in my football. This is just it's kind of going all over the place. But no, but like, this is too much folding in your lifetime, man. This is a, a lot to handle. Listen, the Ottawa, the Ottawa football scene has been one and a, a very emotional um, there's been a lot of dramatic, emotional uh, foldings in my life that happened in a very formative age of my life. <laughs> so sad. So, so I've had too many teams in my local city fold, um, but also come back. And but it just shows that like there's an appetite for Canadian uh, football in the city. There's mm. a, there's a love of it in the city, and you know the supporters groups that were then at the time are still around. Going back with this, it was just crazy to like think that like you know. I was playing, you know, uh, in the CSL reserves the year after. And then you're hearing about, you know, match fixing in the CSL, RCFB doing an investigation, you know, people from Eastern Europe, like investing in, 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 in match fixing in Canadian football. No way. You can even Google this. Like it's, it was like a, they did like a whole CBC, like 21st minute report about Holy crap. The CSL match fixing. And, you know, it was sad to me to see it because this was like, for me, I was, I was even more heartbroken because of mm. that. It's like. I think that was one of the first times I saw like football not being like pure in a sense. Yeah, the dirty side. You know? And I was like, yeah. And like as a as a young, I don't know, 15, 16 year old, I was just like, man, like, no, like our football club is like more than like, more than just a team, more than just money. It's like about our identity. It's about our love. Yes. Community building, all these efforts that we all know to love. And I'm happy that Canadian football, like the CSA, like uh, disbanded that league and and made sure it didn't go and and kind of progress to what we have now with the Canadian Premier League. And it's Fantastic a beautiful league. thing to see. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of going all over the place. No, no, no. I had so much love and heartbreak with Canadian football <laughs> that, like, this moment is just kind of surreal that we're in to kind of tie it all around. Yeah, uh, that's that's the thing. It's like, I think especially growing up in Quebec, we have this, you know, Quebec always kind of wants to distance itself from the rest of Canada, always wants to do its own thing, whether politically, culturally, whatever. And so for me growing up, there was never even a, just a little bit of an idea of supporting a Canadian national team. 
maybe the women's team was acceptable because they were successful and they were killing it. And I always say this, the men's team is catching up to the women's team, which they are, and they will be uh, hopefully soon because their rise is kind of astronomical, but who knows? Cause the women's team is just marching on really way ahead. The men's team anyway, and forever will be unless the men wins the world cup this year, which I don't know. Fingers crossed, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> but I, that's the thing. Growing up in Montreal, we've always had, the, like, especially my the generation of Montrealers, my generation at least, is that we have a suspicious eye towards everything. Where we're always kind of like, yeah, but it, whenever it's too good to be true, we're like, no, there's something wrong. There's just like the mentality that we have. So when this Canadian national team make, made it to the World Cup, everyone's like, we saw the group and everyone's like, I don't think we're going to make it out, which to be fair, it is a tough group. Morocco, Croatia, uh, Belgium hard groups and I, I put a meme in my story where they all have a reason why they hate France yeah I Canada, know that, yeah. Canada former French colony Morocco former French colony Belgium and Croatia got knocked out by France in a World Cup final semi-final but all that to say is this is the first time I've seen Montreal is being like should we start paying attention I'm like yes you should this team is fantastic there's five players from the Montreal CF Montreal playing at the national team you know, and two, three of those guys are Quebecois players. And I'm like, you should really start paying attention. And uh, and to your point, I said earlier, you're not the first person to say that. I don't think this was going to happen this soon. Like, I, I, I don't, I'm speechless. I, I just can't believe it. Like, yeah. I, it's, um, what it's, are you it, it definitely is shocking, you know, because, yeah. But I think, you know, the one, I think the the thing that shocks me most about the side, because I think, I've known Canadian footballers have always been talented. Yes. Right. But it's been about, it's been about a couple of things. It's been about a co opportunity and organization and whatnot. But I think what this side, this national team side has, and the thing that's making everyone fall in love with it is the sense of belief and the sense of unity. Yeah. Right? And even John Herdman talked about it. Like, and this has been an issue with Canadian football all over the country. I'm sure in the Montreal scene, yeah. in the Ottawa scene, and, you know, I'm sure every city has these things. But, you know, football unity hasn't always been the biggest center of focus uh, in, in, in Canadian football. There's a lot been a lot of difficulties and drama and ego and, and whatnot. But this team is really like of people of all different backgrounds, of all different yes. cultures coming together and saying like, we are a brotherhood and like that's actually like in a sense unifying the country in a in a country that is unified but on the football team having i think uh for the first time and i think this is a, definitely of credit to john herdman but a, a unified vision yes right of like what what is needed to happen we're shooting for the stars but it's not something that is un we're not saying oh the stars are unattainable we're saying if we do these things if we have this core belief if we have we have nothing to lose, then we can actually achieve these things. And that's what I, in my opinion, and this is like, it's not cocky, but it's confident, but that no other football side in the World Cup has that aspect that Canada has. I think so. And I, I totally agree because I think when Canada qualified, all the pundits were pretty much saying, all the pundits in Europe were saying Canada is the dark horse of the tournament already. Like uh, I, was, I was listening to last week's episode of uh, Point of Vuj. And we're listing all the World Cup groups. And they looked at the Group F. Was it Group F that Canada's in? And they're saying, anyone can make it out of this group. Like, they didn't dismiss Canada. They're like, anyone can make it out of this group. And these two you know, YouTube influencers who have, their opinions are really good when it comes to football. Like, it's like, uh, people always talk trash about Poet whenever he's going on on Manchester United and their performance. But whenever he says things, it always comes to fruition on the field. And he's always right. And so when they both were like, 
you know, Canada can make it out. And I was like, yes. And it's, and also, and that's another thing is that I think for a long time, uh, as like football and community throughout the country, not at the professional level, we all lived in pockets of our own communities within our city, or, you know, we weren't always connected. But finally, the national team kind of makes us feel together, unified as a fan, because the team reflects that. You know, when I was at the uh, BMO Field, when they played against uh, Jamaica and qualified, it was literally Canadians from across the country that flew in. I knew so many Montrealers that drove in for that day, for that game. And it was, it's cool to see, you know, it's really like, it's, it's really unprecedented. And yeah, even, even the hockey fans, right? The people yes. were like, you know, throughout, so throughout my lifetime, I've had a couple of times where hockey, some hockey bros from <laughs> high school have apologized for, you know, <laughs> like literally physically apologized nice. saying oh, football. You know, football isn't what I thought it was. Football is actually this really beautiful thing. I got into it because of FIFA and then I yeah. watched the Premier League and these kind of things, you know? And I think this national team I've seen, and even my friend, like who I'm very close with, who was at that uh, final match, you know, I've been in, I'm in Greenland right now. I wasn't able to watch yeah. it in person. Uh, if you guys don't know, I'm, I'm in Greenland right now. But, We're going to talk about that uh, later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it's amazing to see these like, quote-unquote hockey fans like really taking a love for this team yes taking a love for the sport but then also taking a love for like oh what's my local team what's my canadian like yeah i already have a culture of of that within the quote-unquote hockey of like supporting the the community side they like to support like the european side because it's obviously the best and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. but like people want to go see what's in their communities and i think that's what's going to grow with the foundation of the canadian premier league yeah and even if league one ontario and all these league ones across you know, and PLSQ and League One BC and eventually Nova Scotia and Saskatoon yeah. and this kind of, like they start to get that uh, a more regional teams like we see kind of in hockey in that model. You're yeah. going to see more footballing um, fans who weren't typically football fans start to like come around it and fall in love with the sport and and put their children into that sport. And mm -hmm. the 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 ceiling for Canadian football is 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 so, so high. Yeah. And like we've had a culture of football in this country for years. Like, I don't know if you remember... Uh, when you were in high, in elementary school, at every playground, we would play this one game. What did we call it? We called it foot hockey, right? And it was with the tennis ball, and we'd kick the tennis ball, and then someone was in goal with the hat, and they would save Wait, it. I never played and this. You never played? Okay, in Ottawa. Okay. Oh my, all the, oh wait, this is all, fascinating. And I'm sure in Toronto or in other places, it, it was called foot hockey, okay? okay? They called it foot hockey. It was basically five-a-side football with a tennis ball, that they were instead of the goalkeeper using their heads, they pretended with a baseball cap that they were the hockey goalie, and they would play like a little. They would literally play futsal on the ice. Like we have a culture that's kind of amazing. Like I, I grew up playing this on the on the on the schoolyard, and always the footballers would always be the most dominant there above the the hockey yeah. players. But it's like we have this culture of playing street football. We have this culture of hockey hockey players adapting to football in the summer mm. but now they're coming and recognizing that like canadian football is a point where they can also, also fall in love with it and see yeah. it for what it is and it's amazing to see yeah like it's just funny when you bring when you brought that story of uh or what's it called the game that you played in the elementary school uh, foot hockey foot hockey because like what we played was basically like i don't know like soccer and snow and it was basically it was like it'll be 30 30 centimeters of snow and we'll just play football on the pitch where the pitch would be and like, I, I shout the ringleaders when they have the frostbite cup. When I saw yeah. that for the first time, I was like, I used to play this when I was a kid. And then, yeah. 
And it talked no pants and the boots. Yeah, that's the thing. And it talked to Angelo. Uh, shout out to Angelo. Oh, shout out Darby. Uh, Darby Mag issue two is out, and I wrote a story about the ringleaders and Frostbite Cup, which is uh, I love. I loved writing that. But when he was talking about Frostbite Cup, and I told him, I was like, dude, like when I saw that, it just reminded me of my childhood and uh, like the beautiful memories I had. And it's to your points that we always had a foundation. It was just that there's so many there's so many players I met playing pickup soccer who were incredible, like levels above me, who were in a you know youth academy or played semi pro. But they had nowhere to go. They either they are cut or there's no CPL. So they're like, well, gotta go find a regular job. And just to think so many people fell through the net and now those guys won't fall through the net anymore. I you know, like it's how many hockey players, how many hockey players that like I don't know if it was the same in Montreal. Yeah. But in Ottawa, there were so many hockey players that played competitive football in the summers at a high mm. level, at the regional level, at the premier level. But when they got to U14, they ended up choosing to play hockey instead. Yeah, because it was more realistic to be a hockey, yeah. but professional hockey player than a professional footballer. And it's now it seems like it feels more 50-50. So like when I think back and like, I think now there's a realistic opportunity to play football professionally. And it's also a cheaper sport to get into as opposed to hockey. Like even, so I guess same to you. Like I know like there's my sister's boyfriend who's, you know, a big hockey fan. I watch much of Canadians religiously. And now I converted him into a Liverpool fan. So, and he's playing soccer with me. And then like, we played like a handful of times. He's like, dude, he's like, this is a lot of fun. He was like, my impression as your friends were saying, he's like, oh, I thought it was just dudes flopping on the ground, crying and whatever. And he was like, no, I realized that it's a lot more complicated, a lot more fun than that. I'm like, yeah, man, that's just on TV. Like when you play in real life, it's a different story. You know, so yeah, it's you know, it's just like, it's, I, I wonder where these notions have, have come from. Uh, stereotypes. You know, of like, that took, but you know, I think I maybe we can go back to I, I I'm a big like kind of Canadian football nerd. Of course, um, that's why you're on the and, podcast. And, yeah, I guess so. But <laughs> you know, uh, I remember I, I wanted to research. You know, was Canadian football ever at one time big? Was it ever at Man. one time at the center or stuff? And, and I remember doing a bunch of Wikipedia research, digging, and so it was found that in Pre-World War II, the Canadian FA was a huge, like, association. It really? was founded uh, at that time. And, you know, there was a lot of, like, English expats, Scottish expats that yeah. were living, you know, here that have immigrated to Canada. And there was a rich, rich footballing history. Pre-World War II or World War I, don't quote me on this, uh, but it, the information is out there. They ended up doing a tour of the Canadian FA, which is now the CSA, going over to the UK and playing games against Manchester United, Aquinville, all these big clubs, what? beating them. Beating so them? It was, and there was predictions, there was predictions that the Canadian Footballing Association would be the superpowers and, and, and giants in, in Canadian and in, in world football at the time really? when not a lot of nations were. So when I was digging into that more, I was wondering, okay, so then what happened? So hockey was obviously also big and all these immigrants also played. But during World War II, this group, this group of men, right, who grew up with their fathers passing down football generationally, playing with local clubs in, in their towns and whatnot, they, they went to the war, right? And some yeah. may have passed away or some may have not been there generationally for, you know, however long. Right. And they weren't there to necessarily pass down that, that generational understanding of what football is. Uh, so then a lot of people ended up turning to hockey for some reason 
and moving towards that and the popularity of hockey grew as more professionalism of hockey came about. Um, and I always found that interesting because I'm like, you know, if these some world wars or whatnot would have happened, like what would have been, what would have, because we didn't maybe have as strong as a footballing history of in the UK at the time that had, had clubs for years yeah. upon years before us, but it was at the beginning. And I wonder, okay, what would have happened to Canadian football if, you know, maybe hockey would still be as popular, but you know, football would have been mm. equal footing at the time if it would have kept getting uh, passed down generationally as it was. So it's uh, it's interesting to kind of look back on the history of our own Canadian football history and, and also see that it is very like deep rooted, but you know, societally things can happen that, that make a, put a pause on, on this sort of development of a, of a, of a certain sport. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating because like, maybe that's the same, perhaps the same thing happened to us. Cause like, I, I remember watching this documentary called soccer town USA on YouTube. It's a pretty good one. It's, um, talking about the history of us soccer and a particularly about this town in New Jersey, I think called Carney. And it's like kind of like a working class neighborhood and all that, but that's where all the Scottish landed and they worked in the factories and next to the factories, they had a football pitch where they'd play after work. And they brought in pretty much, that's the same story in the UK as well in Scotland. So there was like, they created this foundation and apparently they were like really, really good. And something happened where the popularity just diminished, I guess, because in America, there's like five dominating sports so that it was just probably got lost in the shuffle. But it's, it's, and it's fascinating to know that Canadian football was that big and that and that it's just as you said was put on pause you know and it, it's and then yeah it's just to think to think I kind of want to find it I want to I want a Canadian football association like that's uh, to me that's really fascinating especially when you look into the history where you do see that there was this foundation like what what would what would MLS, what would the Canadian MLS teams look like today if that if that foundation still existed today? You know what I mean? Like, would Saputo Stadium, would Saputo even own the uh, CF Montreal, or CF Montreal would just be its own completely independent, different thing? You know, with Toronto, maybe Toronto FC would have still been called Toronto FC because you know, like, probably all of our city, all of our city teams would have been called FC at that point. Um, but yeah, it's that's uh, it's really cool. Or, or especially when I think in the context of Montreal, where uh, what if we had two clubs and there was a French club and an English club and that, that rivalry is like a, like, a, you know, like exactly. an old firm derby, like in Glasgow, like that would have been really cool, perhaps really dangerous, but like really cool, you know? And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really cool to okay, see. Okay. Hear this, hear this, hear this. Yeah. Yeah. So in the, okay, you can, you can cut this however you want, but no, whatever, uh, this is the history of, this is the history, uh, from a page called canadiansoccerhistory.com. Okay. And it says. Overseas tours by Canadian team, the Great Britain Tour of 1888. 1888. So in the fall of 1888, a team made up of players of the uh, from the Western Football Association of Ontario toured the British Isles with notable success. Many of the players who made this trip became very distinguished persons in later life. The year 1888 marked the beginning of England's famous football league, and the Canadian team played Notts County, Newton Heat, now Manchester United, Blackburn Rovers, Aston Villa, West Bromwich Albion, who were members of that league. They also played such famous clubs as Glasgow Rangers, Queens, Queens Park, Air United, and Hearts, plus a team made up of the best Scottish players, not the actual Scottish national team. The Canadians made quite the impression on the British soccer scene at the time, and the English papers in particular are full of praise for the players. 17 of the 18 players whom, who made the trip were born in Canada, only one who was not was David Forsyth, who brought 
brought to Canada from Scotland at the age of two. Wow. And they have, so we beat Manchester United 2 nothing at the time in wow. October 6th. And they were Newton Heath. We lost the Blackburn Rovers though, 4-1. But weren't they the powerhouse back in the back in the days? I think they were like the big boys. I'm reading soccer and yeah. I think they said we they were like the Yeah, and we beat Hearts three nothing. Wow. Not bad. Like I mean, but imagine what imagine how, you know, Canadian football, like if that would have been transferred back. I wonder like I just wonder what happened between that time mm. in eighteen eighty eight to where we're at now. I like, think I think it's hockey because like think about it, like because uh, I was reading I remember watching the CBC documentary about the history of ice hockey in Canada over the pandemic. I watched a lot of documentaries over the pandemic, as everyone yeah, did. As and we all did, yeah. As you all did. And I remember um, uh, ice hockey was invented by, I forget his name, but was, he was a McGill medical student from Scotland. And he thought that the winters in Canada are literally eight months. At the time, eight months, now six months, but whatever, climate change. But anyway, but he was like, the winters are so long and brutal. People don't really do much outdoors because A, if you go too far out the city, it gets dangerous because of animals and whatnot. And the, then you know just the weather will kill you and he was like and also but people aren't doing anything besides skating and there are there isn't really any team sports so he developed this sport on ice uh, with rugby rules and with nets and it was kind of like this hybridized version of like rugby meets football on ice in a way mm. but because the game became so it, it was first played in montreal and it was such a, a novelty and so interesting to people that it just kind of blew up yeah, and also, like, yeah. if you get to play it for the majority of the year, you know, everyone's just gonna turn to that as opposed exactly. to you know what I mean. I think yeah. that's my theory. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, but, it's but that, fascinating. But it shows yeah. we have a history, right? But it, it shows does. we have this history of sport and we have a history of football. And yeah, we're at an opportunity now where we're back in 1888. Mm. Canadian yes. football is back in 1888, and this is the time when the next. Imagine what the next hundred years are gonna be. Now we have. A fresh slate to create with all these new leagues. But yes, that's that's a beautiful thing. Like Josie Mourinho said, like with Canada's success, more European scouts are going to Canada to watch games because they realize that there's a wealth of talent that no one's looking. Exactly. And, you know, it's cool, especially with CPL. It's gonna make things way better. I don't know. It's it's good time, man. It's a good it time is, for it us. Is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Do you some? Do you sometimes wish that you were like a ten year old now? seeing how this team is doing and inspires you to like work even harder to let's say go pro because if i know that if i was 10 years old today i would definitely be in that mindset to be like all right let's see how far i can push myself to get to that level yeah i think yeah. i think the opportunities now are are more than ever is for these youth footballers yeah i think i've never seen more you know jonathan david or alfonso davies shirts in the street yeah insane like especially it's someone for these kids to look up to mm. that literally three years ago was in high school. Some of them, you know? Yeah. Like it's, it's, there's the beautiful thing about this is there's not a far degree of separation uh, from where they were playing yeah. youth football in the, in their country here in Canada to playing at the highest level. So I think, man, to be a 10 year old again, especially with all the development and the opportunities with these semi-professional leagues and, and CPL coming and it's just going to be growing. Imagine when they're 18, you know, mm. you know, the, the CPL will have so many more teams than it does now. And, and there'll be so many more opportunities for Canadian footballers to, to become professional at that time. So yeah, yeah. I would be excited to be a 10 year old, uh, in today's, today's day and age. I would be too. I mean, like, 
again, in Montreal context, I see like a player like Ismail Kone coming through the youth academy ranks and making a serious impression and even getting called up to the national team. I'm like, I've seen, I'm, I remember just seeing him playing at the Olympic Stadium. And I remember looking at him, I was like, I've played with and against guys like this my entire life. Not to say that, not to say that he's not that good, but it's just like when you, whenever you play against someone, you know that they have that magic, that's something special. And you watch them play, you're like, dude, you can, you shouldn't play, you shouldn't be playing amateur with me. You should be going up higher, right? And I remember seeing him and I was like, man, I've seen so many kids like you. And to know that you're 18 or 19 and you just like, and at least in Quebec education, you just got out of high school. Like, you know, this is, it's, it's mind blowing. It's just really cool to see. Yeah. It's so. like sad. It's like, if, like a part of, I think I can't, I can't speak for you, but a part of me is like, I'm sad, but also happy at the same time. Same. I'm like that. Yeah. I'm totally, I totally get it. Like you said, like how many people did we play with? How many people who, I don't know now, right. With Canada being 30 something in the world. That doesn't only just, from my knowledge, I could be wrong, but that doesn't only open opportunities for the Alfonso Davies or mm-hmm. the Joe Davids on the national team, but that opens doors for all these footballers trying to pursue a goal, right? It's easier yeah. for them now to get a visa because mm. they're in that top 30 or 40 ranking, Yeah, you know? So, um, yeah, the amount of players that we would play against who who never saw the light at the end of the tunnel past U17 yeah. or U18 and, you know, are seeing this, you know, I, I think the funny thing is they could probably still ball it out in the CPL. Yeah. They were given an opportunity at 28, 29, uh, but it's just about, you know, having that belief again that they could do it, but the yeah. talent is still there at that age. And I think we're, we're one of the interesting countries where people are becoming pro at 25 for the first contract and then going till they're late because you know, you haven't, your bodies aren't sore as as when you're burning out in the UK, starting out at 16 or 15 at the highest level club playing till 25 and peaking then, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, that's what I love about the CPL. It's like, it's really a second chance for players that we've, that flew under the radar to have their shine. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I actually, just before doing this, I just bought the new, the Pacific FC kit, the Awake kit. What? Bro, it yeah. is so nice. It's the best one. It's like, it's, they use indigenous art in such an amazing way, but it looks so amazing and it just catches your eye. I, I love it. I love it. I'm so happy. I bought yeah. It. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a kit that is going to resonate with, with the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, to acknowledge First Nations artists. Yes. First Nations tribes. It's something that I, I love seeing that the CPL is doing Same. with the awards, right? Like the CPL awards are being created by Inuit artists. That's beautiful. Uh, up north. Like it's, it's, it's providing an opportunity in this time and, and changing the narrative around Canadian football. And I hope to see more First Nations footballers get the opportunity. Yeah, man. That's the, that's my dream for sure. That's, I would love to see that. Do you know, like, um, I had this thought actually earlier today. Do you know how um, in Spain, Athletic Bilbao, the only sign uh, Basque players, players who are born and raised in the Basque country. Yeah. It's like, how wild would it be if we made a team that was just, oh, what if there was a club that did the same thing except with indigenous players? This is only for indigenous players run and organized by indigenous people playing at the CPL with a majority yeah. indigenous fan base. Like, I, I don't know, just that I idea. Winning the league every year. Oh, man. Yeah, that'd be cool. It'd be really cool. I would love to see that. And I, that's, that's, if I could speak to someone at CF Montreal, I would push to be like, can we have one away kit? That's made that's done by indigenous artists. Cause you know, there's a very big influential Mohawk uh 
Mog Reservation across the river. And I was like, you know, there's one or two artists out there who probably want to design a really cool kit for us. I don't know, but it would be... Yeah, and I think British Columbian football has been really, really good at that. I have a group of friends. Uh, so I'm a member of the Baha'i community. Yeah. Um, and I have uh, some groups of friends that years back uh, made a Baha'i football club uh, out in British Oh, Columbia. wow. And uh, they were actually, a group of them, they had, there were some uh, First Nations Baha'is uh, that were, you know, parts of this, uh, the Baha'i community in, uh, in British Columbia. And they formed this team that would compete in, uh, Northern, uh, Victoria Island. Okay. It, it still goes on today, but it's like, kind of like the world cup for the, the first nations <laughs> yeah, so uh, cool. tribes in, in, uh, in Northern Victoria Island, it's called June sports. So this, uh, potlatch they, they would have a potlatch, which is a, a huge spiritual, uh, yep. celebration. Uh, for these, uh, for the communities there, uh, as well as having the craziest football tournament ever. So this group of, so this group of Baha'is were the only non-First Nations team invited uh, to participate in June sports. Uh, and the name of the team they came up with was the Twin Arrows, because uh, there's a, the, in the Baha'i faith, the you know the manif there's a twin manifestations the the Bob and Baha'u'llah who who we believe in uh, but there's also some uh, some uh, prophecies I guess in uh, in the in that in that culture that talk about the idea of twin arrows coming together and creating unity uh, which aligns itself with with the Baha'i faith so these indigenous uh, Baha'is as well as Persian Baha'is and people of all background created this team called the Twin Arrows and participated every year in this tournament called uh, June Sports. And they would always say the footballers on the island, the First Nations footballer islands are the most technically sound footballers and the most tough footballers. Wow. And it would be like, you know, it would be like warfare, you know, they would go into tackles like studs up, you know, they'd come <laughs> out like, you know, have like, the, it would be like, it literally is like a world to final every game. Man, um, that sounds that's a beautiful celebration of spirituality, but, but sports and unity and families coming together and. They would have parades and I, I can send you some photos and please sure the, the viewers can look up uh, the June sports. Uh, you can look at probably June sports, British Columbia and the twin arrows football club. They're still around. So Aaron, it's an amazing thing that's happening. Up when, there. when you come back from Greenland, let's go. That sounds like a soccer pilgrim episode already. Like we got a, we got, I, I want to check that we out. We should do it this summer. Dude, I'm down. Yeah. Like I, I really want to go see that. Cause that sounds fantastic. That sounds amazing. I, Oh, it's just, I'm just thinking about it. It's really cool. Like, you see, it's like, so but look at that. That's Canadian football culture. Right that's there. it. Like, that's it. It's beautiful. Like, it's not always about the professional level. It's all these small grassroots things that f will always fly under the radar. But someone like you will uncover it and share it. And you're like, wait, what? Like, this is entire thing happening on Victoria Island. It's, you know, it's super cool. And like, I think Pacific FC is tapping into that, right? That's great. They and know that's the great. cultures that are there and they're, and, and I think, yeah, it's amazing to see. But so, yeah. But okay, backtracking a little bit. So you said you're Baha'i. So yeah. um, I have a master's in religion, but that's something we didn't really cover. So is there a distilled version to breaking down what that faith is? Yeah, so uh, just kind of a, a bridge version. Yeah. Um, so the Baha'i faith is a world religion uh, right. that was founded in the early 1800s, mm -hmm. uh, originally from Iran. But there's Baha'is all over the world in literally every single culture, uh, every single country. There's Baha'i communities there. Um, and this Baha'i faith uh, truly is an independent world religion. 
that believes in uh, the equality of men and women, the harmony of science and religion, nice. that the earth is really one country and that mankind is a citizen. So no matter that. what background you're from, what culture you're from, we, we're all really one, uh, one humanity. And I guess the, the goal of the faith is how can we think about creating uh, unity in the world, not only just, you know, with, within the faith and that kind of stuff, that's great, but actually how do we do this uh, with people of all backgrounds in different community building uh, endeavors and activities. Um, so the the faith was founded by the founders, the Bob and Baha'u'llah, uh, who came to bring this message for today and 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 believe that uh, this is this is the the message for humanity today. That humanity is kind of uh, ready to hear as we believe in progressive revelation. So as Baha'is, we believe in all the different manifestations of God in the past that have come as from the same source. Yeah. From from one God, as we believe in the same God as, uh, you know, Islam and Christianity and Judaism and whatnot. Okay. But we also, and, and also uh, First Nation spirituality, there's a huge, because as Baha'is, we believe that not, you know, no culture in the world, you know, was ever left alone by any sense of spirituality by, of course. by God or whatever it was called. But that we know that there's going to be, you know, messages of God in the, in the future that is going to bring stuff for humanity when they're ready. But now is the uh, time for humanity to kind of, uh, you know, be one and be united. Uh, and as, as you know, we're going through all these different tests and we're in this kind of stage of adolescence uh, as humanity is going through these turtles, mm -hmm. but we're really starting to acknowledge our oneness of humanity uh, and how to, how to put that into, into practice. Like and that's kind of like the abridged version, if I could. No, I, I like that. Like the more we talked about it, I'm, I'm already making... Um not clicks, connections in my head of understanding this faith better. It's fascinating. So is it a, uh, would you consider it esoteric? Would it be esoteric or would it be a little more, because you said revelation. So you mean that every so often, let's say a prophet, if you will, will come and reveal something different or I guess uh, share a new message that's relevant to what's happening in that moment in history to push the faith further into history? Yeah, I guess yep. push, push humanity further, right? Like, right, okay. So, uh, I mean, uh, I think it's a, it's a very, you know, it's not, it's not just kind of like a hippy-dippy faith either. It's no, 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 yeah. It's in a, in a, in a, in, in a, in a sense, but we believe that, we believe in this idea of progressive revelation. So mm -hmm. just like in school, like, you know, you have grade one, you have grade two, you have grade three. I see. You know, as humans, we progress and yeah. develop maybe you know, maybe in, in grade one, you couldn't have understood, you know, uh, trigonometry or whatever, Yeah. but you understood, you know, uh, you know, one plus two, this kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's how we believe, you know, okay. of years ago, humanity was in that sense, but now we're in the stage of maturity that like, you know, look at us, like we're people of different backgrounds, different cultures, and we're coming mm. together and we're able to like, uh, see unity in the world. Even the idea of a world cup, right. It's like this idea yeah. of different countries and cultures coming together and like, even in all the challenges we have, of course, humanity and even personally, right? We have so many tests and difficulties, but yeah, we we're starting to see that like we're all human beings at the end of the day. We deserve human rights. We yes. deserve, you know, uh, love and unity and and justice and and. Uh, but actually, how are these things like applied in action, and how are these right. things uh, really brought forth uh, to the world? Is something is is, is different things that Baha'is are trying to. Um, Okay. You know, apply and question and understand better uh, through the writings of the, the Bob and Baha'u'llah. Fa okay, fascinating. So there's a lot of overlap with football, I guess, because I yeah. guess, because this is, this is the one thing I have always compared football with religion. I mean, it's a cliche at this point, but I've always told people, I was like, 
it doesn't matter where you go in the world. If you know how to play football, that's a language in of itself. You don't need to speak the same language. If you play it, that's such a big icebreaker and people warm up to you. Like, uh, I guess, I guess a little bit of disclosure. Like I used to be a missionary. I used to be a Protestant missionary and the f- most exotic, exotic, quote unquote exotic or most foreign country I've been to was Chad in central Africa. And mm. it's a predominantly Muslim country, but while there, I think I was, I realized that I was better at, this is why I call it soccer pilgrim, because I was better at being a football traveler than a missionary. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I'd always end up talking about football as opposed to talking about the Bible or whatever. And then every so often I'd be like, hey, we're going to go play at like six o'clock, you down? I'm like, yeah, let's go play. And then I just became friends with them. Like granted, I, I speak French, so this is a French country, so it was easy to communicate. But yeah. like, yeah, we were a team of six and the other three of us didn't speak French and they played. And because they played, it was just really easy to bridge that gap. And it was, it was, this is why I always kind of told people like football is my personal religion uh, because it's as this, this exactly the, the, you know, the same way you describe about the Baha'i faith and, you know, the beautiful language you use and the beauty of that. I see the way you, you expressed it. It's, and with the, it, it brings people together, you know, as you said, we exactly. remind ourselves that we're human, that we all love the same game and that we all want to win. And we all understand what it means to lose. And we lose as a community. We win as a community. Like uh, the 2018 World uh, FIFA World Cup documentary, the official one that's on YouTube. Uh, there was a moment where the Senegalese uh, fans were crying and the Colombia fans were consolidating them. It was like, hey, man, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about yeah. it. You know, we love you. And they don't even speak the same language, but they were, that moment made me cry. I'm not, I'm not going to be honest. It was a beautiful thing yeah. to watch. I'm like, God, oh, you see, the World Cup's amazing. Let's, let's all make it political. This is great, you know? Yeah, and, there's a lot of, you know, and I think people try and point out, you know, the issues of football. Yes, you know, there's exists. the issues with humanity, you know, just in general. But I think what football proves, right, Yeah, is, and then this is, it, it, it kind of reinforces my beliefs in unity and the, what the Baha'i faith talks about is that, like, if, if, if we can unite around football, right? If, if humanity can unite around this game, yeah, that is the first step towards unity in so many different facets. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? I agree. We're not saying football is going to solve everything. You know, no, of course not. We can't have discourse or we shouldn't talk about this or talk about that, you know, and, 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 and football is going to solve, you know, every single aspect, but it's a tool, right? That brings people together that, that comes around a common framework that people can put their egos away and actually then develop friendship, yes. right? Because the first step towards love and unity is what is friendship. Yes, you have yes. to you have to have that at the center. So it's actually such a special thing that football is. And actually, you know, I think my faith my my uh, my faith has has made me fall in love with football more. It's made me even want to explore cultures. Like football gave me. The ideas of geography gave me the ideas yeah. of, you know, learning about different countries and yeah. foods and, 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 you know, watching uh, Derby days and, and yeah. those different cultures. I'd be like, man, humanity is so awesome. Like, it's yeah. just, and it, I want to go to every country and, and discover football and connect with them and build these friendships and, and, and be of service to people in that sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And we, I think we just got to come up with creative ways as people who love football to try and, and, and showcase uh, that sense of unity and, and use it as a tool to, to create unity. I think we have a, a powerful moment we're living in in history to, to, to do this and, and, and to really create something special that, you know, Canadian football will advance, but, you know, world, the world will advance in a, in a, in a I'm hoping so. 
I'm totally, I'm hoping so. I, I, I feel yeah. you on that. And so you're traveling, you're Greenland. Why? Yes. <laughs> Why? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, uh, I'm in Greenland. I'm working with the, so I've been, so over the last 15 years, I've been working with the, the junior youth empowerment program. Mm. Uh, so it's a, it's a program that helps people between the ages of 11 and 14, help develop their powers of expression, uh, being of service to the community. Uh, the program is inspired by the Baha'i faith. Uh, awesome. Okay. Has, has come from, uh, inspired by the teachings of the faith, but it's really an independent program that brings people of all different backgrounds and cultures and religions and whatnot to really come and think about like, okay, at this age, it's a difficult age, but how are you as a youth being empowered to be of service to your community? How can you like do service projects and also uh, develop your power of expression? So there's a series of, you know, books that help, um, you know, read different stories about different youth their age that uh, talk about the challenges that they're going through help them learn different, like, uh, different lessons and this kind of stuff. But then, okay, you guys, you're not, you're not just people who are going to just like sit around and do nothing. Like what can you do in your community in your neighborhood? You know, we don't always have to go somewhere else to, to make a change. So yeah, uh, I'm here just supporting the, I've, I've had a lot of experience in Ottawa okay. uh, and Canada doing this. Um, and I'm here right now just supporting some of the, the, the youth that are involved with this program here in Greenland, uh, start some of these activities and really grow the community building uh, endeavors what, here in Nuke. What's a, what's the program called or the, uh, the NGO, the nonprofit? The yeah, so the, it's just, it's just called the, the Junior Youth Empowerment Program. Okay. Uh, and some of the books are through the Rookie Institute. I uh, see. So that's, that's, uh, that's where it's from, but. Okay. Uh, Wait, how long have you been there really, for? I've been here almost a month now. A month. Okay. So how cold is it? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's colder in Canada right now than. Are you serious? Just funny enough. <laughs> I mean, Nuuk, where I'm at, is parallel with uh, with Iqaluit, but it's only uh -oh. negative two or zero degrees right now, <laughs> which is uh, it's 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 been really nice, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The week it's... before I got there was negative twenty seven. Negative. You know what's funny is like. Well, you say negative two as Canadians, I'm like, okay, it's not too bad. That's not too bad. Exactly. <laughs> it's I know. not too bad. I know. I mean, compared to the games in Hamilton or Edmonton, oh. I mean, that was worse than being here in the Arctic. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I was in the Toronto game, it was minus four, but it was just constantly, wind was constantly blowing. And I'm just like, oh, it's the, it's really, it was the wind that killed it. I was like, okay, like it's, it's slowly eats at you and then you can't deal. So, how, yeah. how much longer are you Greenland for? I'm here for another week in a bit. Okay. Uh, and then I'm back in Canada, but I'm hoping to come back. This is my second time around and it's, it's yeah, the, the Greenlander community, it's a small community. There's yeah. around only in the whole country, there's a population of only 50,000 people. No, yeah. Uh, but man, the people are some of the sweetest people I've met. Some of the war, most warm and thoughtful people I've ever met. Yeah. Uh, but also I've had a chance to connect with the football scene here, which has been how is that super cool, man. So, uh, you know, uh, for a long time, people, you know, in Canada would use the excuse, oh, Canada's not going to be good at football because, oh, we're, uh, we're full of snow and it's too cold. Yeah. <laughs> in Greenland, football is the most popular sport. It's the yeah. number one sport here. There's no other sport, you know, maybe people play volleyball, badminton, that kind of stuff, but football is the center. Like everyone around town is wearing uh, the track suits and the jerseys of the biggest club in, in Nuke, which is B67 okay. is the name of the club, or their Greenlandic national team uh, wow. uh, track suits and that kind of stuff. So 
it's a it's a pretty big deal. And uh, yeah, I've had a chance to last time I was here to watch the national championships where B sixty seven was in the final, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was amazing. It was. Yeah, they're playing futsal and it's like 5,000 people there. It felt like a Champions League final. Wait, 5,000 people at a futsal game? Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. That's the, good number. The gym was like, the gym was like packed. It's like, I think that was like 25% of the population of Nuke because Nuke is only 20,000 people. That's 25 for, wow. Can <laughs> imagine 25 for, like, like in Montreal, if 25% of the people showed up, that's like under a million people who would show up to a game. Like yeah. that's, that's insane. That's so insane. Yeah, Exactly. And I mean, yeah, so football here is amazing. Yeah. I love that. And genuinely, they're very, uh, so football and nuke, they're very technical players because mm-hmm. they play football majority of the year. That's cool. Uh, and and fast and and um, they have a really, they play like a style that I noticed was like very possession oriented also because of football. I like that. Um, so I think, you know, Greenlandic football is also on the rise, like Canadian football and there's talks because they're not a part of FIFA right now. Uh, there's talks about them joining FIFA and then joining CONCACAF. So in the future, Aww. there could be, because they're part of North, Greenland's technically part of North America, even though they're they're uh, related to the kingdom of Denmark uh, right. through colonialism and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, that BS. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> they they technically are part of North America. In the future, we could see oh, Canada cool. versus Greenland, uh, you know, a World Cup qualifier, Canada, Greenland versus USA World Cup qualifier, and uh, that'd, that'd be fun, man. Like that'd be so cool. Um, well, so what language do they? Okay, so do they speak? Um, I'm assuming not all of them. I'm assuming they do speak some Danish. I'm assuming they speak. Obviously, they speak their own indigenous languages. And do they speak to you? Do they all speak English? A majority of people now speak English. I think apparently, like 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't the case. But I think globally, I think you know. No, it's English is becoming more dominant for right. a lot of populations. Everyone does speak Danish, yeah. uh, but everyone also so uh, they speak Greenlandic, which okay. is what they call it. But it's a it's a close uh, cousin language of Inuktitut in right. Iqaluit. So oh, okay. the the main population here is the Inuit Greenlandic uh, population. Um, so so is it like. A, is it like uh, compared to to what's spoken equalute? Is it kind of like a different dialect or like a completely exactly? Like, it's like a okay. different dialect. It's like a okay. different dialect. So it's like they're like cousins because I mean there's a separation by right. the ocean and water and that kind of stuff. But apparently they can understand a majority of uh, that's cool. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's really that's really cool. Um, okay, speaking of indigenous languages, I'm gonna share this random story that just came top of my head. So I was yeah. reading the, I was reading this book. Oh, I'm forgetting the author's name, but um. Oh, no, I'm forgetting the author's name. But anyway, he's a Canadian author from Northern Ontario, and he wrote this book called uh, Canadian History in 10 Maps. So how to retell Canadian uh, history through 10 maps. Because his thesis was like, Canadian history is more about exploration, if you want to see it through that lens. It was, he was, it was really fascinating. So he's like, first chapter, he talked about indigenous people, obviously. He's like, they didn't have any physical maps, but this is what the kind of maps they would draw on, on the sand or whatever. But there was a story where he was saying the, the early voyageur, I think it was Alexander Mackenzie from Scotland, he was trying to find a way to the Pacific Ocean. And he wrote something like, if you don't have, if you're a team of, let's say, like 14, 15, if you don't have three, four or five indigenous people and at least like eight or 10 French Canadians, you're screwed. That's like, that's this, this, this trip will not happen. You need those guys. And they specifically chose like Dene people because their dialect overlaps with so many other indigenous dialects. So they were the main translator. 
And then finally, when they got through the Rockies, through like they almost died several times, but like and when they got through the Rockies, uh, they when they got to I think it was the Haida people on the West Coast, mm. that's when they were like, dude, we can't translate anymore. <laughs> it's like a completely different language. I don't know why I brought that up, but it was just like it's really fascinating how yeah. languages and dialects overlap and spread throughout peoples and countries and geography. But uh, yeah, but- and it's super fascinating because apparently the close, even in Greenland, like the closest part of Greenland is only like you know, uh, by water, not even 15 kilometers or something. So like, what? Because I was like the, it's like, yeah, it's a point where like Northern Iqaluit and, and Greenland kind of like meet in a sense. Yeah. And they're like super, super close and that. And people like traditionally have been able to go by boat and that kind of stuff. But now with modern times, there's like difficulties with the border and coast guard and that right. kind of stuff. Uh, but people have like cousins and families on both sides. And like in oh, one side, so you're cool. part of Denmark, the other side, you're part of Canada. That's Which so traditionally cool. they used to be more like one. Um, and it's even really fascinating. Like people say it, now it's changed a lot with like, you know, uh, globalization and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but even a West Greenlandic language, South Greenlandic language, East Greenlandic and North Greenlandic used to be like the same language, but they used to be completely different dialects themselves. Mm. But because now they're like a one nation there, there's a lot of like similarities and, and obviously with education and that kind of stuff, yeah. they start to kind of like learn a kind of middle ground in a sense, but even accents and that kind of stuff are very different because that's cool. Even now, right. There's no roads between the communities. It's all f- through flying. So really? if want to get to, so if they want to have the Greenlandic national futsal championships here in the North, they all have to fly into whichever city, whether it's Nuke or Sisimut or yeah. Angolusuak or whatever. Like they have to go there. And each one has apparently now, they used to play on gravel pitches and there was a whole Red Bull article about Greenlandic football. Wow. Uh, but now the the country has like turf pitches and whatnot. And I'm guessing if they join CONCACAF, they're going to have to have one covered, uh, you know, yeah, uh, like turf the- pitch to hit the stadium <laughs> kind of a thing. So no, be it's so- going to be an exciting day when Greenland uh, plays against Canada and Honestly, I think they can compete. I think a lot of the Greenlandic footballers, and if there's any Canadian Premier League scouts out there, you guys should come. Mm. And I, I could scout for you, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know, they should scout in Greenland because there's a lot of quality players here that I think need an opportunity to play professional football that maybe they don't get that opportunity in Denmark. So, so yeah, it's an untapped market all, as well. On my fantasized indigenous uh, club, there will be a space for Greenlanders. They'll have a, they'll have a space for them too. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, Greenland should have a Canadian Premier League side. You know, imagine that in in a oh man, obviously it would be Equalude, right? Where they would play? Well, no, or Nuke, Nuke here in Greenland. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean Nuke is a bigger uh, is a bigger city than Iqaluit, but maybe I'll, I would love to see a football club in Iqaluit too. You could have a derby, Iqaluit versus Nuke. That'd be so fun. The, you know, what, what what would you call that derby? Uh. It would have to be some sort of inuktitut name, but if I could give it in like an English name, it would be, you know, maybe the Aurora Darby or something. Like, oh, that's a good you know, one. Like, that's a good one. Every night here, you see like the Aurora Borealis, and you saw the CPL now with the new ball has uh, came out with the Aurora Borealis ball uh, or, design. So, or even just uh, yeah, Arctic Darby, which no, nah, this is a little too literal. No, nah, that's too literal. But that's I love that. I love that. Or you'd have to talk to uh, Adrian uh, Asufi, who made that uh, video for uh, the Canadian Premier League. Maybe they would be able. Some of the artists that are designing these Canadian Premier League awards could come up with some sort of derby name. But I think mm-hmm. in the future, I would love to see more Canadian football. Um, you know, investment in the north. More uh, maybe even like we could have like a once a year 
you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Forge versus, you know, a team from Montreal or Athletic yeah. Ottawa play up up in the Yukon or up in the Kaluit or something. That'd be the best I thing. It would be, I, I think it would be really, really cool to kind of see that and maybe one day have a have a team in every province and territory. I would love that. I think, honestly, I think that's the end of goal of CPL is to have as many teams as possible. Ideally, if they could have 20 teams in the CPL throughout the country, that'd be the coolest thing. I would so love I have a question for you. Yes. So as a Canadian football fan, how do you see the the structure of Canadian football going? Because right now we have the CPL and we have some of these regional leagues, but what do you like, you know, it, I, it's not obviously there yet. So what do you mm. envision as being like the future I, uh, I, for Canadian football? I would, uh, the way I see it is, I think MLS will obviously be the top one with the three MLS teams. And I think that's the cap for Canadian franchises is those three MLS teams. And I think that was the plan anyway. Um, before the CPL, I felt like they wanted maybe two or five, like three to five Canadian MLS teams. But now with the CPL there, I think they're happy with three Canadian franchises. I don't want to say below, but let's say below is the CPL. But I feel like the CPL, I want to see it reach 20 clubs. And I, what I understood was, I remember Tugwa told me this once. He was saying, um, uh, the CPL doesn't put any money into any clubs. It's completely grassroots where if the community and the city wants it, you front the money and the investors and the private owners or whoever. But that makes it more interesting because that is as grassroots as it could get in, within this fr- uh, framework. And now there's like two or three clubs that are coming up in the CPL within the next five years, which is a lot. And it's, and then under that, I would like to see every province and territory have their one own League One uh, semi-pro division, which, you know, Ontario and Quebec has a very developed version of it. And, and that will be the one below CPL. And so it will be, there will be a clear structure and pathway for every Canadian player to play at any level. If MLS is the end goal and to make millions of dollars, so be it. Uh, but, you know, at least there's going to be some sort of level of progression. Because before there was, but it was unclear or it was just like not properly managed. And that's kind of how I envision it. And now we have eight teams in the CPL. We might be seeing 10 in the next year or two. And, you know, I think Windsor and Vancouver are coming up with their own clubs. Uh, I would like to see, I would like to see a Quebec CPL team. Whether it has to happen, it has to happen. Whether it will happen or not is really a political decision more than anything. I don't think it's financial. I think it's political because Quebec always wants to do its own thing, which is very annoying. But I don't want to get down this rabbit hole. Not that's for another yeah. episode. But, yeah. uh, but it's um, I would like to see Quebec City have their own club. I think that'd be really cool. Or another Montreal CPL club to compete the market with with CF Montreal. But I don't think Joey Saputo will let that. But I would like to see I would like to see that, or I would like to see I would like to see an Acadian club. I think that'd be really cool, an Acadian club out in New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. I think that'd be yeah. really cool. I think definitely the Atlantic provinces uh, or Newfoundland. I think they're yeah they're I think they're moving. They've been you know they've been adding a bunch of you know BC and to yeah uh, Ontario. Personally, I would like to see less of that and see actually more even in the eastern provinces. Yes, I think the potential for like. Darby's and how the how amazing the supporters culture and the wonder. Yeah, you went to Halifax. Yeah, I went to Halifax and like you know the football. I mean, football and culture in Ottawa is amazing, but you know in the Atlantic provinces, it's something else. It's it's really representative of lower division England mm. uh, in that sense. Uh, when I've was seeing Dulwich Hamlet or that kind of stuff for the like diehard level of support that they have, and I think the Atlantic provinces, I think that would be a huge a loss if they don't start focusing there. 
because you could easily create so many derbies, right? In Newfoundland, in Moncton, yeah. in Acadia, you know, uh, you definitely, I could see five teams minimum, at least more out in the Atlantic province for sure. Or, yeah. or, or Eastern Quebec, like the, like whoever the, the farthest East, maybe it was that Quebec city or is it Sherbrooke? I don't know. Uh, uh but I mean, I think past, I mean, you could do Shukutsimi, Rimouski, but those, those are super well. Uh, I would say Quebec yeah, city. But yeah, I think like you could like, definitely like there could be a, a whole, like, I don't know. There could be a whole culture of derbies out there that mm. it's, it's it's different than the city life of Ontario or you know the I agree main like you know Montreal and and that kind of stuff. Where it's yeah, just urban. then everyone push out. To, you know, that's it. I, yeah. I think I totally agree with that. Like, I would like to see a, a Moncton team. I think that'd be really cool, or Fredericton team, or a, a Saint John Newfoundland team. That'd be honestly like to see more maritime athletic provinces teams would be really awesome. And even maybe one in the territories within the next five, 10 years, that'd be awesome. But yeah. we'll see. I, I think at that point is more who was willing, is the market there? I guess we got to And who's to willing this. to invest, right? Like, yeah, I think, but I think with the success of the women's and the men's national teams coming, it's going to happen. Companies are willing to invest. I remember TSN was talking about it on their like, oh, when they were doing the draw, how all these companies like Canadian Tire and, you know, big big companies are going to start to invest, but mm -hmm. then you're going to have local companies starting to invest just like they're investing in, you know, that team in Peterborough with Electric City. I would mm -hmm. love to see, along with maybe, the, they've talked about promotional relegation, I would definitely love to see, uh, you know, go to these markets that already have OHL franchise or huge oh, OHL franchises. You smart. know, like, go to those owners and say, hey, you make money in the winter? Hey, you can make money in the summer too with a semi-professional club. And just professionalize it, professionalize it the same way and give them the same strength and conditioning and give them all this kind of stuff. Hmm. But make it professional. Like make these mini stadiums that are 1,000 seaters. Sell tickets just like you do in, for hockey in, the, in these small rural towns in the middle of nowhere in Quebec or Ontario. Like I think yeah. if we follow more of that model, like people will start to have a thirst for football in their own markets. And I that's, that's how it point. is in other countries. But that's a good point. I did you put a story recently where they should make this stadium in this I did. What, what where was that stadium again? It looked so that like, was in Faroe Island. So Faroe Islands, yes. Yeah, that was a beautiful stadium. And yeah. I totally agree that I think that's also another step forward. If the market's good and it's rich and thriving, they should hire these architects to build these beautiful stadiums that don't need to be 50, 60,000. Like a beautiful 10,000 seater stadium will, that catches the eye makes the league even more attractive. It's like, oh, they're building all these really nice stadiums, you know? Yeah, because it's about the environment that you can create. And like, yeah, I think that's what the benefit of, you know, uh, lower division, you know, we actually, I, I see the parallels of lower division hockey in this country that we do with lower division football in other countries. I, I see it. Professionalism, right? Like when I went to a Dulwich Hamlet game, which is in the eighth division in London or whatnot, they had 4,000 people, 5,000 people out to the game. That's it fantastic. felt like it felt like you're going to uh you know a a, a Gatineau Olympic game or a, mm. you know a, a Ottawa 67s game. I'm like, so let's just take these same ownerships that are professionalizing in that way. Go to their sponsors, get League One or PLSQ to go to those like owners and say, hey, can you invest in uh, in in Blainville? Can you invest yeah. in these kind of things and make that same sort of professional infrastructure? Uh, that we see not just like oh it's a youth football club that's u23 that is just playing on a turf pitch like 
let's make idols in these small towns like you do in these random parts of Saskatchewan and Quebec. And, you know, that's, I think, how you can grow it, the market. That's how you can go away from just building growth in these big, big markets. Yes. Right? Because that's that you can only cap so much, especially in North American, you know, audience. In Ontario, outside of Ottawa, I would love to see a team in Almont, Ontario, Mm. which is a town of 30,000 outside of the city that has a hockey team and, you know, has a beautiful, like, uh, fairgrounds that has a thousand-seater stadium there. Yeah. Put a football team there in League One. Or even another Ontario city I'm thinking about is, like, Sault Ste. Marie. Make a team there. You can... uh, St. Marie FC. Oh, what a great name. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking about names. Moose Jaw, Medicine Hat. Give them a team. Yes. <laughs> the Sioux FC. Yeah, yo, dude, it'll be... Oh, good name. But it'll be... You see, like, there's so many opportunities. I feel like investors... First Bay even. Sudbury, right? Like Thunder Bay or... Yeah, that's it. Like, it's... I feel like if let's... I'm curious to see how Windsor pans out. If Windsor pans out and it does well, I think it's one of the smallest cities in the league. If that does well, then maybe other cities will pay attention and do the same. Who knows? But um, but I'm curious. I, I like to see how this all pans out. Yeah, it's an exciting time for Canadian football. It really like, is. You can't even dream about this stuff, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I get. But anyway, Aaron, I got two more questions uh, before we wrap this up. So first question uh, is, on your bucket list, what is the match that you want to see? Like, top of the bucket list. Like, your, the match that you, like, I don't know, dip into your savings to go watch in the world, whatever it is. I think the biggest match I would love to go see would be the Tehran Derby in Iran. Oh, Estekalal versus Persepolis. Okay. It's 100,000 people oh. and they go <laughs> mad during the Derby. It's like one of the most dangerous derbies uh, to go to. And if I could ever go to Iran in my life where my mom is from, yeah, uh, I'm half Iranian myself, but if I could go to Iran, I would love to go watch that derby because oh, the, the scenes in that derby, especially because it's kind of one of those untapped derbies. Like, yeah. you know, you hear of Besiktas or you hear of the, you know, yeah. Turkey or you hear of, uh, you know, River Plate versus uh, Boca Juniors. I would love to see all of those too. Of course. But something that like is a bit outside of the... The, the, the norm, uh, quote unquote. The norm, yeah. you know. Uh, but something that is also in my heart because I have uh, roots in Iran. So yeah. I have to go see that. Okay. Yeah, that would be amazing. That's a great shout. I I learned something new today. A hundred thousand. Because yeah. every I played with I played soccer with so many Persian players with on my team or against them. And they're the most passionate people I've ever played with and the most technical. <laughs> and they're I mean, passion like when I'm playing against them is so annoying. I'm like, oh, I hate you. But like it's but it's it's that competition that they have. Like they're real footballers and yeah. really, I, I love playing with them. And yeah, and it's them. definitely like you know, I think it's definitely an underrated team at the World Cup. Yes. But it's funny now my cousin who was born in Iran, he's like, I'm cheering for Canada. I'm yeah. cheering for Canada. <laughs> like he's like kind of like if he was worried like if Iran or Canada would face each other, but now he's like I, he's been coming to the national team matches and getting into local football and that kind of stuff. Yeah. For the first time ever, especially with the CPL. And now he's like Canada number one, number one, Canada, I love Canada. <laughs> so it's uh, it's fun to fun to kind of see that. But yeah, you should definitely, and all the all the listeners should definitely check out videos of the Tehran Derby. Uh, definitely on, will on uh, YouTube. And I hope you know Ellie Benjamin on Derby Days could one day go to Iran and do it, bro. Derby Days on that. And yeah, second question, somewhat related, doesn't need to be the same game or whatever. What is this venue? It doesn't have to be a big game, but which venue would you love to go watch a match? It could be just a regular match or a big match, whatever. Aaron's thinking. 
thinking. Well, deep. I have to think. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. like to give you an example, like one of my bucket lists was going to Santiago Bernabeu to watch Real Madrid play. I was able to do that against Celta Vigo. And it was, um, it was incredible. Like the stadium was incredible. Everything about it was incredible. But I realized it was a lot of show business, which was kind of, so the vibe was good and it was fascinating, but it was like uh, not as amazing as when I watched, honestly, the, the atmosphere of Canada playing Jamaica at BMO Field was way better than the Bernabeu. But I was so grateful to have gone to watch Real Madrid at Bernabeu because that's so special in of itself. But anyway, that being yeah, said, I think some of the best, I think some of the best football matches I've been to so far have been in Canada. Yeah. Like going to the Impact versus Toronto FC at Always Olympic good. Stadium, 60,000 yeah. there. Like, That's, or like uh, when they played Santos Laguna. Like yeah. those were some crazy days uh, in Montreal or this Canada, this round of Canada games. I wish I was at the last one. Yeah. But one that's always really fascinated me because I had a friend who did his PhD on this club uh, at Carleton University hmm. um, would be uh, would be San Lorenzo. The yes, team the Pope's in name, Argentina. Yeah. I think Argentinian football and supporters culture there is like at the another best. level. They take football and they take this idea of being a, a football pilgrim yeah. at a whole other level. Yeah. Um, and it's... It, it's a, it's a love for your team that I have never seen anywhere. I think the closest were, I mean, to me, the, it's the Canadian national team is my, my ultimate love on that level, but it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different level of passion and the chanting with the hands and, yeah. and the limbs and the I, food before the game and people I are love, friendly. So I love Argentinian football. I think even the Brazilian fans, I met some Brazilian fans that said the Argentina fans are just another thing. They're like, they're, they're louder. They're way more passionate. Like they are quite literally ready to die for this. Like it's, it's another, it's another thing. Yeah. And the only, the only, the closest thing to Argentinian football I've ever come close to is when Ottawa hosted the U20 World Cup in 2007. That was the first uh, level of football. And it was Sergio Aguero and wow. uh, a couple of other of those players of that generation who were playing in Ottawa at that time. And there was, I don't know where these Argentinian fans came from in Ottawa, but like all of Lansdowne Park, you know, in central Ottawa was filled with Argentinian fans be like, do, 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 like, I wouldn't be drums oh, and everything man. was insane. It was like, it literally lit up, the, like you could hear them in the stadium from like years, like from miles away. And I was the, the, the flag bearer for Argentina during that U20 World Cup. Really? Took Aguero's hands. And I just remember being like there and we didn't have a Canadian football at the time. And I was like, I wish one day we could play football <laughs> like this and we're going to get there. But, you know, it's uh, I would love to see Argentinian football at San Lorenzo and uh, in that stadium. It's a, It would be a dream. I'm Maybe we'll you. go together. We should, I'm we down, man. Dude. Do an Argentina trip. So we already got three things we need to do is going to that, um, to that big cup, that a big match in Northern Victoria. And then second, I have to go to Atletico Ottawa game now. And you're, you're yes. going to be my guy. And we're going to go there with uh, Phil Larivière. He's coming along. He's tagging. 100%. Him. And then thirdly, a San Lorenzo game or just any Argentinian club match. Boca Juniors, River played San Lorenzo, whatever. Like, we're going to make it happen, Aaron. We're going to make this happen. Yeah, I have a love. See, I have a love of food and football. Okay. Food, football. <laughs> see, here's my thing. Food, football, and coffee. Okay. Yes. So if we can tie all those things together. 
we'll make a little uh, podcast series, a video series or something, and we'll <laughs> we'll uh, we'll go travel the world and uh, yeah, just show the love of the game. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm I'm all about that. I'm very much all about that. But anyway, uh, to everyone listening, this is the end of this episode with Aaron Hooper. Actually, Aaron, is there anything you'd like to share or plug to the audience if you like? I mean, just thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, if you want to check out some of the stuff I'm doing, uh, I've started a football series on YouTube yes. uh, uh, called Match Day Memories, where I kind of do that food, football, and coffee uh, in different places around the world. I have two episodes out so far, and a couple more are going to be coming out in the future. I have a couple in the back burner. Um, so yeah, check that out. And it's, uh, the Aaron Hooper on all social media, but I really appreciate being able to come on here. Of course. And chat football with you and, uh, you know, uh, build stronger, uh, bonds of friendship and unity uh, yeah. through the whole process. So it's an exciting time for Canadian football. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've come on. I've, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Like, uh, we've, again, we've been talking so much for the past year and I'm finally happy finally been able to do this while you're in Greenland, which I had like, I, you're, <laughs> you're in Greenland. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so to everyone listening, uh, thank you for uh, listening to this episode. Uh, please don't please don't forget to subscribe to Soccer Pilgrim on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also follow me on the Soccer Pilgrim on Instagram. And I got nothing else to say. Once again, Aaron, thank you for pulling through. And thank you, thank uh, you. from Montreal, the Soccer Pilgrim, thank you.